and welcome to World Headlines Weekly, bringing you underreported headlines from around the world. We start this week in Haiti, where protests over high gas prices have escalated and evolved into a near revolt as Haitians cry out against massive cost of living increases, the lack of relief from the government, and talks of international intervention. As World Headlines Weekly reported in the September 20th and October 4th episodes, protests began as gas prices throughout the country dramatically increased, in line with oil price increases around the world. Since many Haitians rely on gas for cooking, electricity, and transportation, the huge price increases have completely paralyzed the country. As the government led by the U.S.-backed Prime Minister Ariel Henry failed to provide relief, protests grew dramatically in size and scope. Thousands have routinely turned out to demand his resignation and to demand that the United States and international community do not intervene in the protests. Since the escalation, the United States and Canada have sent military equipment to the Haitian police to, allegedly, help quell the gang violence that has gripped the capital of Port-au-Prince. However, videos from the island show police in full riot gear battling otherwise peaceful protesters. As a result, Protests took on a more rebellious tone in recent days, with protesters taking over the streets and gangs seizing the opportunity to blockade a key port in Port-au-Prince. This has led to even deeper shortages of fuel and water, which has left the country in a state of a humanitarian crisis. In a country with already fragile supply chains and social services, the blockade has stopped the importation of food and critical medical supplies into the country. This has caused schools and hospitals to close, internal supply chains like farmers getting their food to the markets to break down, and an outbreak of cholera has even begun in the capital. The UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, US Ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, and various officials in the Haitian government have requested UN authorization for an international security mission led by the United States to go to Haiti to remove the blockade. On Friday, the UN Security Council approved sanctions against, quote, bad actors, which will include asset freezes, travel bans, and embargoes on individuals and entities designated by a UN Sanctions Committee. But support for international intervention in Haiti remains unclear on the world stage and even among U.S. officials. Most Haitians support a Haitian-led solution to the crisis because of the island's long, failed history with foreign interventions. The country itself gained independence through a slave revolt that cast off the chains of the French colonizers in 1804. Since then, France, the United States, and at times other European powers have wielded significant influence over the country through both military and economic intervention. The United States occupied the country outright for 20 years, from 1915 to 1934, after which a series of short-lived regimes and presidencies governed the island many of which received support or hostility from the United States. Eventually, in 1957, Haiti elected a soon-to-be dictator nicknamed Papadoc Duvalier to power. After a few years of popularity, the economy started to falter, and Duvalier cracked down hard on dissent, creating a private militia known as the Tantan Makuts that terrorized political opponents and civilians. After his death in 1971, his son, appropriately nicknamed Baby Doc Duvalier, ruled under a similar regime until he fled for France in 1986. While the relationship was rocky at times, since the Duvalier were staunchly anti-communist, 
they received foreign aid and favorable policy directives from the United States throughout their nearly 30-year rule. The United States would intervene in Haiti again in 1994, and then again in 2004, and then again after the 2010 earthquake. A UN peacekeeping mission in the country, which was plagued with scandals including sexual abuse by UN personnel, just left the island in 2017. The most recent U.S. intervention arguably came last year, when the U.S. began providing support to the unelected Prime Minister, Ariel Henry, after the previous Prime Minister was assassinated in July of 2021. Henry has no constitutional authority to be Prime Minister, and in February of this year, CNN, CBS, and The Washington Post reporting implicated him in the previous Prime Minister's assassination, citing multiple legal and law enforcement sources in the country. And yet, all this only scratches the surface of foreign intervention in Haiti. So, even with such a dire humanitarian situation unfolding, the international community remains hesitant to send any military force to the island, and most Haitians themselves certainly do not want them there. Last week, a thousand strong protests marched from the capital Champ de Mars Park towards the U.S. Embassy, declaring their stance against international intervention in their country. Next, we head to Brussels, Belgium, where the European Parliament, one of the two legislative bodies of the European Union, has called for the development of a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty to be developed at Egypt's COP27 summit next month. This kind of treaty would complement the 2015 Paris Agreement by phasing out oil, gas, and coal production in use, which is responsible for 80% of total global carbon emissions. This comes less than a month after the World Health Organization and the government of Vanuatu, a nation-state in the Pacific, called for such a treaty for the first time. Other international officials, including the president of Timor-Leste, Tuvalu's foreign minister, and New Zealand's climate minister, have echoed support for the treaty. Besides these high-profile figures, parliamentarians, representatives, and local figures around the world have since issued endorsements of the resolution. The resolution borrows language from the nuclear non-proliferation treaties between the United States and Soviet Union towards the end of the Cold War, which successively drew down nuclear weapons production. The resolution calls on member states and nations around the world to drop their plans to expand and invest in oil, gas, and coal, phase out existing production, and ensure a just transition for workers, communities, and nations. Notably, it calls upon wealthier countries to ensure a just transition by helping countries throughout the Global South respond to climate change disasters and build sustainable infrastructure. It also takes aim at Europe's current push for cheap gas. Because of the war in Ukraine and current reliance on Russian gas, many European countries have pressured the African Union to expand its gas production. The treaty calls for European nations to instead use the war as a catalyst to decarbonize their economies and stop relying on gas altogether. The resolution passed the European Parliament overwhelmingly, with 450 members of Parliament voting in favor and just 119 voting against it. To put this in context, the Parliament voted last year on the same treaty and the result was basically flipped. Just 168 members voted for it and 510 voted against it. This is a huge credit to the members of Parliament and the International Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Initiative for getting this resolution passed. Time will tell if the righteous purpose of the resolution can overcome fossil fuel business interests at the COP summit. But regardless, the sentiment of the resolution marks a huge milestone for European climate policy.
In an update from Burkina Faso, Ibrahim Traoré was sworn in as the new president of the transitional government of the country last Friday, beginning a special transitional term that is scheduled to end with, quote, free, transparent, and inclusive elections no later than July 2024. Notably, this transition timeline follows the agreement that the former government of Burkina Faso, led by Army Lieutenant Colonel Paul-Henri Demiba, reached with the Economic Community of West African States, a regional political and economic union. However, this agreement might prove difficult for Traoré, who must reclaim nearly half of the country's territory from various Islamist terror organizations. So far, military efforts have failed to quell the threat, with terrorist groups gaining territory during Demiba's nine-month rule. French counterinsurgency operations in the region have also done little to help. Burkina Faso's northern neighbor, Mali, requested that French troops withdraw altogether from their country earlier this year. France accepted the request and finished pulling out troops from the country in August. Surprisingly, the war in Ukraine has had a huge impact on this front. A Russian mercenary group called Wagner has likely been operating in Mali since the start of the year. Because of Burkina Faso's anti-French sentiment left over from decades of colonization, and because of the current failures of French counterinsurgency units, international observers are concerned that Wagner will expand its presence into Burkina Faso. Time will tell how Burkina Faso adjusts its counterterrorism strategy, but with a new president and broader anti-French regional trends influencing their counterinsurgency efforts, change in some form is very likely. And lastly, we head to Sudan, where tribal clashes triggered by land disputes have broken out in the country's southern Blue Nile state, claiming the lives of at least 220 so far. Fath Araman Bakit, Director General of the Blue Nile Health Ministry, said that the death toll could be higher since health officials have not been able to reach the ongoing fighting safely. Last Wednesday, residents began reporting intense gunfire and houses set ablaze, with fighting continuing over the next few days. These latest clashes mark the deadliest fighting this year, which has seen tensions rise between the region's Hausa people and neighboring tribal groups. July clashes killed 149 people, and clashes just two weeks ago killed 13. Hundreds of demonstrators marched through the state's capital, Damazin, over the weekend, calling for an end to the violence and for the Blue Nile state's governor to resign. The region has spent years rebuilding after decades of a civil war that ultimately led to the entire bottom half of Sudan declaring independence and forming its own country, South Sudan, in 2011. Sudan itself has experienced a few years of turmoil, experiencing a coup last October after three years of democracy. The country's previous authoritarian ruler, Omar al-Bashir, was toppled in an April 2019 popular uprising. And those are your headlines from around the world. I'll see you next week.